was here last week. Incredible sermon from Mike left me a bit challenged. It's a good thing that preaching is not a competitive sport because I'd have felt under a lot of pressure this morning. I was challenged by him. He, he, he talked about doing something for the first time. It's part of his personality and part of his drive. And to demonstrate that, he threw a frisbee across the church. Do you remember that, those that were here? Now, I had a plan, but I talked myself out of it. Um, <laughs> at home, I have on the wall of my office a bow and arrow. <laughs> I thought I would bring an apple and enlist a friend as a volunteer. But I talked myself out of it because friends are precious. And so we'll just have to go forward with what we have. Sorry? Apples are precious too, sis. Not that apple, the ones that you eat. I wasn't going to put an iPhone on top of someone's head. Guys, some time ago, as Ant mentioned, Ed spoke about being a multicultural, multi-ethnic church, about the fact that we come from different places with different cultural backgrounds, and that that's a great thing, but it means that we need to take each other into consideration and work together carefully. Forest Town Church is also an intergenerational church, a multi-generational church. We have a wonderful group of young people in the church, children, we have a group of older people who are also, we believe, valuable in the life of the church. The early church was intergenerational in their meetings. The early church would meet with all age groups, and there's precedent for that in the Old Testament. Let's look at some scriptures. Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians and the Corinthians, wrote his letters, and he expected to have the whole intergenerational group together because he says things like in Ephesians, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. And then it says this, fathers, do not exasperate your children. There's anticipation that children would be there and that the fathers and mothers would be there. He says the same thing in Corinthians, children obey your parents. Then he says, fathers, do not embitter your children. In the Old Testament, there's precedent as well. When Israel came together to renew the covenant in Deuteronomy, when Moses presented the covenant to them again in Deuteronomy 29 verses 10 to 12, he said, all of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives. When King Jehoshaphat got Israel together to pray to God for deliverance from the attacking army, again it says that they were there with their wives and children. This was the practice in the early church. Everybody got together. And that remained the practice in churches until the beginning of the 20th century when we began to have the development of development psychologists, people like Piaget, who came to us and said that children learn differently. And so quite correctly, in response to this new information which the church had, that children learn differently from adults and that people learn differently at different stages in their life, the church began to develop things like Sunday schools and children's ministries, which is a good thing. It is a good thing that our young people at the moment are meeting upstairs, the children, and are being taught in a way that's more interesting for them, more engaging for them. But it does carry some challenges with it in the possibility of moving us apart from one another and us beginning to have an allegiance to our part of the church, our generation in the church. And I've seen firsthand the situation that arises in some churches, and I'm thinking of one that I belonged to some years ago that had a fantastic youth ministry. The children would grow up in the church with the Sunday school. They'd be part of the main service. And then when they got to the age of 12, 
They'd become part of this children's ministry, which was incredible. They had their own venue, a purpose-developed venue for them. They had the most incredible youth meetings on a Friday night. They had their own youth bands. It was wonderful, and it had an incredible feeding into the lives of the young people. But what we found in the church was children would feel part of our church until they became 12 or 13, and then they were part of the youth. They would complete that time, they'd go off to university and they would come back and they wouldn't feel part of the main church. They wouldn't feel part of the congregation because they had developed an identity outside of that. And so it's important that we learn to appreciate the differences that we have, but also to work with them to bring each other into play and to honor and respect one another. And for that, to that end, there's a lovely scripture which we all know in 1 Corinthians. It says that God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, that its part should have equal concern for each other. We need to be a church in which the generations are concerned for the well-being of each other. We'll be a healthy church when we have young people who are concerned about the old fogies like me and our well-being. And we'll be a good church and a, and a vibrant and a growing church when we have old fogies like me that are concerned about the well-being of the young people and are interested in getting involved. And some people do that naturally and some of us have to work it out. I just want to commend someone like Carol. You all know Carol. Carol's in with the youth, she's in with the older people, she's in with everybody. She just goes in there and gets to know them, and it's such a wonderful testimony to people like me who are very shy, um, which you probably have heard me say before. I don't mind standing up in front of people to talk like this, but one-on-one -on -one I'm quite nervous, quite shy, quite embarrassed to introduce myself. So if you're a young person here and I haven't chatted to you, it's because I'm shy of you, not because I think I'm better than you, so please engage me and help me, and there'll be others like me in the church. So how does this play out for the different groups in our church? How do we need to think about ourselves? How can we be sensitive to what's going on and, and make for a church that's intergenerational in the, in the most positive of ways? Let's start with the end of the church that I'm at. When you get to be older in the church, there's a danger that you begin to consider yourself to be of less value. You've been vibrant and part of a church community for many years of your life, and I've had friends come to me and say, I feel like I'm being bypassed, and actually sometimes we're not being bypassed, we're withdrawing ourselves. We're saying to ourselves, I'm not what I used to be, I can't be part of this, I can't be part of that, and we voluntarily begin to withdraw ourselves from the work of the church and the development of the church. And that leads to a situation where years and years and decades and decades of experience and skills gained become lost. They become unavailable to the church. For some years, until COVID came along, I used to annually go and preach at a, an old people's grouping, and I call them old people because they sort of averaged 80, 90 years old. And I would go and preach in front of this group of people, and I would stand up and look down on these faces in front of me and think, these are hundreds and hundreds of years of life lived. These are people that have seen things I've never seen, who have been things I've never been through, who have value in what they can share with us, and yet, for many of them, they consider themselves to be just people who were brought along to the service. And I would always feel very humbled in their presence. Um, so there's the danger of withdrawing, of becoming, thinking that we become irrelevant, but there's also another danger. One side of me might want to withdraw, and there's another part of a personality that might say, I can still do everything I did. I'm, I'm still the person I was, I, nothing's changed. And we land up trying to remain the same person that we've been for the last 30 years. And that doesn't work. There are things I can't do that I used to do. I used to be a worship musician. The voice has begun to wobble. The fingers have begun to wobble a bit. 
And I sat this morning and watched Johnny up there and thought, what a fantastic thing that God brings people through. What a wonderful thing that this young man has been brought into our congregation to take the worship on and go with it and to take the rest of us with him. And I don't mind sitting on the sidelines and watching. I don't mind praying for him and speaking to him and trying, if I can, to help him and to mentor him in some ways because God moves us on. We need to realize that our value stays in my generation, but it changes in the way that we live it out. And one of the things I just mentioned that we can start considering is the need for us to pass on that wisdom and, and, and experience that we might have gained, however small or large it might be over the years. And the issue of mentoring, and that's an area where I find wonderful precedent in the Bible. It's full of examples of the older people mentoring the younger people and the value of that. And my favorite is one that I've, a person I talk about quite often because I just find so much inspiration from him. That's a guy called Barnabas. Barnabas is known in the Bible, his nickname, he's actually a guy called Levi, but he gets the name Barnabas, which means apparently son of encouragement. And I found a very interesting quote while I was preparing for this sermon. It says this, encouragement is not just saying nice things to someone. It's placing courage in them and confidence based on what you have imparted, identified, and taught. You give more than words. You give reason to be confident. Now, sometimes we think, Encouraging someone is just saying a few words to them, and that does help. But actually, the real encouragement is placing reason inside them to have courage, sharing, spending time, encouraging by giving precedent and example and teaching that equips that person, makes them feel stronger and more prepared to do what they need to be doing. And so Barnabas, this is we have a look at his life very briefly, Barnabas is best known for, for mentoring both the Apostle Paul and a guy called John Mark. But we first find him in the Bible in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and, uh, and 37. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field and he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is a story of Ananias and Sapphira. The first time we read about him, He's giving of his wealth. He was obviously a successful man. He was a businessman probably at that stage, an owner of land. And the first we have of him as he enters into ministry is as somebody who brings just of his material gain. We read about him a little bit later when the Apostle Paul has been encountered on the road to Damascus. We all know Paul was on his way to Damascus to go and persecute the church. And God encounters him and he becomes gloriously saved and begins to preach. And he does that in Damascus until he has to flee for his life. And he goes to Jerusalem and he tries to meet with the apostles. He wants to say to them, me, the guy that was persecuting you, now wants to be part of your community. And they wouldn't let him. They were afraid. And it's Barnabas that goes and takes Paul to the apostles, introduces him, and gets him included in the church. Paul then preaches in Jerusalem for a while until it becomes dangerous. And he gets sent back to Tarsus by the elders. And that's where he stays for a while. In Acts chapter 11, verses 21 to 24, it says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed. This is in Antioch. And when news of this reached the church, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And he becomes a church leader. For a number of years, Barnabas goes down to Antioch and leads the church there. So he's growing. This is what he's in his prime. He's growing in his ability. He's growing in his confidence. He's going forward. And it says a little bit later, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. The next step in this man's life is he says, this church is flourishing, but we need great teachers. I remember that young man that was in Jerusalem, that converted zealot called Paul. I'm going to go and find him. And he goes and he brings Paul into the church in Antioch. Now, all of us know the Apostle Paul. He's the most famous 
writer in the New Testament. He's a man of enormous status. But at this time, he was learning, and the person that was teaching him and mentoring him was Barnabas. A while later, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and then sent them off. And they go on the first formal missionary journey that we have account of. And if you go and read in the book of Acts, you'll find an interesting thing that takes place. The two of them set off together as probably equals in the narrative. But as the narrative goes on, it becomes more and more evident that Paul is stepping to the front, that Paul is stepping into his apostolic ministry, his church planting ministry. And more and more, Barnabas is backing him up. And we find no resentment. His life is changing. He's at a stage in his life now where he's found someone who is actually able to go further than he is. And he gets his shoulder in behind him and he pushes like a guy in a scrum pushing the props forward. You've got the locks at the back doing just as hard a work as them because they're supporting the people in front of them. And Barnabas just steps quietly into Paul's shadow and begins to work further with him. But his, his usefulness is not over yet by a long chalk. We find him then becoming a mentor to John Mark. We find that in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but Paul didn't think it was right to take him because he failed the first time they took him out. When John Mark was a young man he'd gone with on the first missionary journey, he'd withdrawn. Barnabas says, let's take him again. Paul says no, and they are so strongly disagreeing about that that eventually Barnabas goes off with John Mark and Paul goes off with Silas, and they go on two different missionary journeys. The powerful thing about this is John Mark was a young man who initially failed Barnabas won't give up on him. We find him cropping up much later, working alongside Peter. He then goes back and works alongside Paul. And most profoundly, John Mark becomes one of the writers of one of the four Gospels. Barnabas never got to write a Gospel. Barnabas never got to be the lead player. But as his life changed and as he aged, he became more and more of a support person, someone who got in behind someone he could have, at any point he wanted to kind of retired and said, I've done my bit, I've done more than everybody else or most people. But instead of stopping, he begins to adapt what he does and becomes, and we don't know what happened to him. We don't know if eventually he quietly just retired somewhere. But we have a legacy of the work of the Apostle Paul and the work of John Mark in writing the gospel that can be laid at the, at the feet in terms of influence of Barnabas. So if you're of the old and the dutiful or the older age, we're not useless just yet. There's lots of work for us to do. There are things we can still do. There are things we can be valuable in. And we need to be prepared to mentor and to share. And I just want to say to the younger generations, it's a two-sided thing there. To be mentors, you need to have people who want to be mentored. And you have people that want to have conversations with you and find out. And you'll find that there'll be things that you disagree with us oldies about. And that's fine. That's the way life goes. That's the way life develops. But the a vigorous conversation with a person of a different generation can be very, very helpful and very, very um, educational in our lives and in our development of our ministry. So let's go to the other side of the spectrum. I just, my notes are out of focus, my bifocal, so just give me a moment. It takes me a while. That's another one of those things that happens. Bifocal is a big blessing. 
When we look at the younger side of the, of the generations, the children and the young people, there's a saying that we often have, children are the future. I've said it myself. We stand up in front of people and say, I believe the children are the future. We sing about it. And it's meant to be an encouraging phrase, and it is an encouraging phrase, but it carries a lot of unintended meaning as well. If you say to someone, you're the future, are you saying to them, you aren't the present? Are you saying your time will come, that you will become valuable at some point in the future? Or are you saying you are going to drive the future for us, but right now you're valuable? When you say to a person who's 12 years old, you're the future, how long is the future? Their life is 12 years. They've got no way of projecting more than that. And what you're saying to them is, stand aside, don't worry. And you have young people being told this who stand back and say, at some point in the future, I will become equipped as an adult and I'll step into my responsibilities. But it's a process. And it starts by picking up the responsibilities when we're young. So what are the young people able to do for us? One of the most important things I see in the, in the, in the role of the younger people in the church is to hold the older people accountable and to ask the questions that we don't ask. You know, there's some things when you marinated in church culture and church history and church tradition that you just don't approach. And some of the best theology I've learned has come from our daughter when she's four or five years old, because she was fearless in asking questions. And one day, Sandra was driving along with her in the car, and she was, a lot happened in the car, in the car seat when she was little. And this little voice said from the back, because you know, just need to tell you, Jess grew up in a house where there was worship a lot of the time, and we taught about praise, and it was a big part of our lives, and Sandra and I were worship leaders. And so little Jess sitting in the back of the car said, Mommy, God wants us to worship Him in the morning. And Sandra said, yes, and was quiet for a while. And in the evening, yes. And when we get up, yes. And when we lie down, yes. And at the noontime, yes, and we're quiet for a while. Has he got a problem? <laughs> now, you and I would never ask that question, would we? That would seem like something that just can't be said. But for a child growing up, she was saying, why does this God who is so powerful need us to keep telling him he's wonderful? It's a reasonable question for a child, isn't it? And Sandra was able to say to her that when we praise God, God exhorts us to praise him because it changes us. It's not to feed his ego. It's because as we remind ourselves of his goodness and his grace and his wonderful power and his miracles and the things that he's done, it builds up our confidence in him. It reminds us that we're calling out his goodness to build us up. But how many people have asked that question in the latter years of their lives? We just, we don't ask that question. We also hear, we also need the young people with us to challenge us on the way that we practice our church. I remember being a young man in the 70s and those of us who were young in the late 60s and the, and, and, and the early 70s will know that we dressed quite strangely in those times. Um, I shudder when I think of some of the things that I wore. And I had an uncle who's been with the Lord for many years now who I respect greatly because he prayed and cajoled and argued and forced our family into the kingdom of God. He was the first one to accept Jesus Christ and he would not relent until he'd prayed us all in. But he was a, a wonderful evangelist, a wonderful man of God, but he didn't understand that he could enjoy it. So he was a bit of a sheriff. And I turned 18 and went off to university, and it was the 70s, and I came home looking like 
well, shoes were not commonly part of my life at that stage. We wore bell-bottom trousers that were spectacular in how wide the flares were. You could walk the first two paces before your trousers moved with you. And I remember having a particularly spectacular pair that were bright gold, made of moleskin. And I used to pair them with a shirt with puffy sleeves and long cuffs, which was bright turquoise with gold furry leaves on it. I also tried to grow my hair. Well, I did grow my hair, but it had no style whatsoever. I would get in the shower in the morning and get out and shake my head, and I looked like a giant earbud. And I came home like that and went to church. Uncle Donald was mortified. And spent a long time with me, talking to me about how I couldn't wear clothes like that as a Christian. And I had to say to him at some point, Uncle Donald, please show me in the Bible where it says I can't wear these jeans. And he said, um, well, it's not in the Bible, it's just the way we've always done it. And young people, it's your job to challenge us on the things that we've just done, because we've always done it that way. I want to challenge you, though, when you bring the challenge, when you bring the inquiring mind, bring it based on God's word, not on preference. And that puts a challenge to you. Before you begin to challenge the way things are done, get into God's word and see what he says. And then's the time to come and say, and we've been learning this and learning this. Is that in the Bible? Show me where it is. And bring that challenge to us to always make sure that we are preaching in a way that honors God's word. And it's a role that the younger people have. There are other things the younger people in the church can do. I rejoice when I see young people up as part of the worship team. And I see young people as part of the tech team. And it's fantastic. But young people, are you wanting to be part of the coffee team? And the welcome team? And the clear up team? Become part of the community. Become part of the community. Don't just wait for that particular role that you would like to have one day to break open. You desire to be a worship leader. Well, start by helping to pack chairs. Start by helping to make coffee. When your mum and dad have their... <laughs> There's a coffee lover over there somewhere. <laughs> but when your parents are hosting with their home group, become part of it. Get involved. Link in. Earn a place. Not earn a place. You have a right. But, but bring yourself into a place where you're used to interacting with the rest of the church and bring that value that you have. Come along with us to Cambodia, possibly. Come and experience the life of the church and prepare yourself. Don't be a, a waiter. God's got enough waiters. They're waiting for something to happen that will bring them a particularly noticeable position or something that's more profile. And in the meantime, jobs are going by that need doing, and you could be becoming part of that. So we talked about the oldies and we talked about the youngies. What about the guys in the middle, which is most of you? What are you? You able and influential? You're experienced, but still able to learn and adapt. You're physically strong and resilient. You've learned about taking challenges and seeing them through, but also you're very busy. You're distracted by much responsibility. You sometimes loathe to learn a new skill set and change what you've been doing because it's been working so far. You're time challenged. Sometimes satisfied with the level of spiritual growth that you've got to. You know, one of the sayings that I found that I need to say to myself, as good as the enemy of best, when we say this is good enough, that's a problem. 
Am I doing the best I can do? Have I become the best I can do? Have I made myself available to God to become everything that He's planned for me? And sometimes for the middle group in the prime of your life and the prime of your career, it's quite difficult and challenging to put that at risk. I just want to read from the book of Matthew about a man in the disciple group that was different from the others. This is Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter 2, verses 14. It's about Matthew. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. And a bit later it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. Levi, who became known as Matthew, who also wrote one of the Gospels, was an established man by the time Jesus got into his life. We think that Peter and James and John, the fishermen, were young men. There's every indication that they were quite a bit younger than Jesus. He talks to them as my little children, and it's not just spiritually he's saying that probably. But Levi's a man who already has substance. He's had a success in his career, probably a pretty horrific career of illegality and, and cheating because the tax collectors were nice people, but he's successful. When he follows Jesus, he leaves a lot behind. It's demonstrated by the fact that he's able to have a feast at his house with many wealthy people there. The challenge for the middle group is that balance, that place of where do you place your desire to minister next to your desire to be a good father and mother, next to your desire to be good at your business, next to looking after the assets that you've gained and the respect that you've earned. And all I can say to you is it's a time in your life to be very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't tell everybody who came along with him to leave everything behind. But some people he did, and sometimes God's going to call on some people and say, your security, your job, need to take a step to the left or the right so I can bring your ministry down the middle. And you need to know when that's God and when that's you. It's your job also in the middle to knit the rest of us together with you. You're the powerhouse of the church. You're the guys who've got the ability to do these things. So questions I will leave you with. What are you doing? no matter how old you are. You know, there was a time in my life when I had a, a rather unhappy experience in ministry. I'd been teaching and I'd been asked to come into a church on the pastoral staff and I'd done that for two years and it hadn't been a great experience. There was some things that were going on that I was not able to condone and when I challenged them, it kind of blew up in my face. And I left that church and I moved out of the town and we moved to Johannesburg and I joined a huge church when I say huge, at that stage there were 17,000 people in the congregation. Well, not all at once, there were 7,000 in a service. And I tried to disappear from God. I tried to just go to church on a Sunday morning and put my money in the plate and sit quietly and let everything else go by because I was disillusioned by church leadership and, and people who called themselves leaders. And I didn't want to know what was going on in the inner workings. And one morning as I sat in the church, God said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm in church. He said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm listening to the word. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm paying my tithe. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm living a good life. And he just kept asking me until I said, I'm not doing anything for you at the moment. And I became an usher in the church, somebody who showed people to their seats. And it was a life-changing experience for me. What are you doing in God's kingdom? Don't answer me, answer him.
Are you still prepared to change and to learn? Or are you ready to go? What example are you setting for those who are watching you? What example are you setting for the other generations, whether you're a youngster or an old and the dutiful, someone in the powerhouse and prime of your life? I want to remind you of a scripture that I started with in 1 Corinthians 12. But God has put the body together, giving different honor to, do, to the parts that backed it, so that there will be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Let's be a church in which across the generations, across the ethnic and cultural barriers, we reach out to one another and say, let's be bound together in God's purpose and God's plan. And that involves each one of us honestly going before him and saying, God, I know I'm not the finished job. What do I need to become next? I'm going to God, I'm turning 66 this month. I'm still going before God and saying, what's next, Lord? There's stuff I can't do anymore. There's stuff I'm not as good as I used to be. But what's next? And what equipping do I need? And I'm excited about the next 10 years. And when they're gone, I hope I'll be saying to God, and what now? And I want to challenge you. No matter where you fall on the spectrum of age in the church, you are not the future or the past. You are the present of the church. And you are valued. Let's value each other. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you use us because you empower us, not because of our basic skills that we have or our personalities or our strength. Help us to hear you clearly. Help us to bring all that we have to you and place it before you so we can become effective in your body. Help us also to honor those who are different from us, to value them and to work to push them forward in what they're doing, to get our shoulders behind them and help them. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for the example that's set in the Bible in so many places of the way your body can function. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Clive. Great job.